Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360, the podcast solving today's most pressing issues in the AI arthritis community. We invite you all to the table where together we face the daily challenges of autoimmune and autoinflammatory arthritis. Every Sunday, join Tiffany and her fellow patient co-hosts as they lead discussions in the patient community as well as consult with stakeholders worldwide to solve the problems that matter most. Whether you are a loved one, a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table. Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360. We're so happy to have you here at the table today. My name is Tiffany, and I am co-hosting today with my friend and fellow AI arthritiser, Simon. Hi, Simon. Hi, Tiffany. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good, thanks. Yeah, minus the bad weather. <laughs> you can tell that Simon has a little bit of a different accent than mm. I do. So, <laughs> Simon, where are you tuning in from? I, uh, so I'm from a place in, in the UK, just south of Manchester, it's called Bolton. So I'm, I've got a real northern accent, um, which is not like the Queen's English, which uh, <laughs> a lot of people look at me strangely when I'm uh, out and about and particularly when I'm abroad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you sound absolutely lovely. And I am tuning in um, from right in the middle of the United States. So we love the magic of technology and being able to bring uh, two people living with these diseases together to co-host the episode today. In the episode, what is the topic? Well, we're going to talk about living with multiple conditions. That's something I think a lot of us that have these diseases um, struggle with. There's a lot that identifying mentally, emotionally, just physically identifying it. Uh, there's a lot that we want to cover today. And um, I myself, I say my primary diagnosis <laughs> is non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis because that is most definitely where my primary symptoms come from. But I do have other comorbidities that don't quite match that, that have been thrown out. Bichette's disease has been thrown out there. Um, and I have some treatment that I've been taking for that, even though it's not a 100% confirmed diagnosis, <laughs> but the extreme canker sores that I experience lend to that diagnosis. Yeah. Um, Sjogren's syndrome has been on and off the table for a while, but the point is my atypical presentation lends to that um, diagnosis of multiple conditions, whether they're confirmed or, or not. Simon, tell us a little bit about yourself, your diagnoses, um, and we'll start from there. And, you know, it's funny the way that, you know, you said it, it's, um, you start with one thing and it's like getting more things at the supermarket. You're, uh, you <laughs> seem to get a trolley full of different symptoms and, and diagnoses yep. seem to follow you along the way, which is not always, the, uh, <laughs> it's not always uh, as nice as it may sound to, uh, I think that's anything probably, we chat about it, you know, the you know, the uncertainty around when you've got something. And I guess like you're non-radiographic, you know, having something but not necessarily knowing what it is. Um, mm -hmm. And when you get the diagnosis, I guess there is that relief in that, you know, there is actually something, yeah. but then also... You're you're right. There is. It's like it seemed, It might seem a little strange to say, oh, I'm diagnosed with something. <laughs> but it when you go for years, yeah. not no, having a name associated with something, it is, it is a matter of relief. <laughs> It That's is for sure. And I think but then all the time as well you get that 
you know, you're building up more and more things and you become more and more complicated and, and from experience, you know, things become more and more difficult, which is, is not good. Um, even though you do get that, I guess, that yeah. relief when you, you find out there is actually something and it's not just random symptoms which don't actually match to anything. Yeah. How did, how did your journey start and what has your diagnoses, plural, become? I mean, so mine go back right to um, the age of three. So, um, I mean, I actually don't remember life without any sort of condition, um, which and I think in one sense is quite nice because I don't have anything to compare to. And I think it is difficult when you, you know, you compare maybe life after diagnosis to before. So, um, so uh, yeah, about three and a half, I was actually diagnosed with juvenile idiopathic arthritis. So back in 1996, um, you know, awareness is poor now. It was even worse then. And actually, I was quite lucky in terms of being diagnosed pretty quickly um, because my mum had um, a variety of also in immune conditions and she she noticed something that was wrong. And it was literally my second toe started to look disfigured and um, my ring finger. So she actually she didn't she bypassed the GP completely um, and just mentioned this to her rheumatologist when she went to clinic. And he looked at it, and I think my mum was concerned, thinking, "Have I passed something on to him?" Um, which isn't the case, really. Right. But you know, there is that concern, I guess. You know, the parents who they see something when they've got something themselves. Right. Um, and so I was actually referred directly to um, the paediatrics team in Manchester, and received a pretty fast diagnosis. And so I guess the journey with with GIA juvenile arthritis began then. And I think for a few years, I I was, if you can say normal, what is normal? Um, <laughs> Good question. <laughs> for us. <laughs> um, you know, I was relatively okay. Um, it was just a couple of joints. So, you know, what we would probably call oligoarticular um, at the start. It was a couple of joints where I had inflammation. And then things really kicked off when I was about seven. Um, and I got tonsillitis, like most kids do. But it literally went to every joint, and that's the the term that we use. My obviously the tonsils were stuck together and had all those symptoms, but I had literally most joints inflamed. My knees came up like balloons. I couldn't walk. I couldn't get to bed, and things really started to to kick off from there. So you know, I was required to have general anaesthetic and steroid injections into into every finger, every toe, loads of joints. And the process then really, really started and, and trying to get into remission from that point was a little bit more problematic because symptoms just carried on staying there. And I guess that went on into into the teenage years, at which point other things started to crop up. So when I was actually 10, I um I had a condition called slipped capital femoral epithesis. Everything's always easy in, in medicine, isn't it? <laughs> oh that's a hard one <laughs> and uh, and basically it's the um in the hip bone the and it's to do with the growth plate and i'd been having a lot of pain in my hip in my left hip but i just assumed it was the arthritis so i carried on walking on it it was excruciating but i just carried on thinking well it's this and i've just got to try and get on with it and it was only when i went to clinic and they did x-rays just to see what was happening and uh, i remember going into the back into the consultant's room after the x-ray and um she said i just remember the words saying you're not going to go home today simon oh and um and she said you and literally from that point i couldn't walk on my hip so the the hip joint had, had come out of the socket um and i mean she said i was i was very lucky it was literally millimeters away from 
been too thorough that it would require a hip replacement, a total hip replacement oh. um, at the age of 10. So wow! literally within within the day I was admitted, I couldn't wait bare at all. And the morning after I was operated on and they they put a, a pin into my hip to keep it in place into the socket um, and touch wood. It's been, you know, it's been fine since. Um, I mean, it's 16 years ago now that. So that, you know, that was just another like a, an idea of something else cropping up, but it being masked by by your symptoms already. And you would you would think, you know, if you're under a team already, that things like that wouldn't get missed. But, you know, a lot of things you just put down to, well, it's because of that. Um, and it's only because, you know, at the time I had a, a really lovely consultant who, who could see this was this was more than um, the arthritis, which at, at that point I couldn't see. And then she investigated it. Right. That, you know, and that's that's something I know we're going to talk about a little bit more as, as we go through. But that's just a really important point mm. <laughs> to, to, to mention is yeah. that it's what I already know. It's my arthritis or it's my, you know, it's the other symptoms that are relevant to my condition. And and that is so I'm so glad that 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 you cut in there when you did, because that is um, that happens, I think, too often. It does. In our community. It does. And. <laughs> And I've seen it as well, you know, when you're under a specialist, you think you're, you would be more likely to pick up on different things. Um, but that's not always the case, I guess, because there, there is that assumption that, well, these symptoms are because of an existing diagnosis. So, you know, you can see the risk and the chance of things getting missed. And, um, and the solution for that, I don't know, and I guess we, we don't know what that is, but I think part of it is also knowing yourself and you know you become you become really accustomed with your symptoms I think you know every patient is an expert in how their bodies are and we all feel things slightly differently so I think that's that's an important thing and to to have the confidence to say actually no this is not the symptoms that I've been having previously and this is something new. This is really resonating home with me I talked about this in another another episode so I'll I'll link to that episode on our episode page but last year at this time, I was very ill. I have rosacea and I was prescribed some antibiotics to get it under control because it had gone into my eyes and I was having a lot of issues just with the eye issue and the skin and everything. And then also I had these topical medications that I was putting on my yeah. face and it ended up, I had told my dermatologist that I have sensitivities all my life to antibiotics and some weird combustion happened <laughs> with this mix of of medications and even though i kept saying something's wrong something's wrong something was hugely wrong i was getting this massive pressure in my head in my jaw in my face all i was wheezing like almost asthma like and people kept saying so at first it was well maybe you have maybe it's related to vasculitis because i had some some vasculitis issues and the rheumatologist ruled that out. And I kept pressing, something's wrong. Something's wrong. It wasn't that people weren't listening. It was just, it must be associated to the vasculitis or yeah. so, something with, with your disease. Until then, the pressure that was building up burst literally out into my face. I had black, huge blisters all over my lips. My whole mouth was swollen. They were in my mouth. I felt like they were in my throat. I had rash all over my body, rash up my face. Uh, My nose blew holes literally through where my nostrils are to my mouth, all that pressure I had felt, and my nose wouldn't stop bleeding. Mm. 
I went back to the dermatologist <laughs> and I just said, help me. And, and they actually um, said that the blisters were Bichette's disease. Oh, okay. And because I had already been taking medication for Bichette's and I kept saying, I don't think that that is what this is. And so I was being very, uh, I was pushing really hard. It just didn't seem like you said, it didn't feel like right. Mm. It didn't feel like that was my autoimmune or autoinflammatory signals. It just, something was off. And um, I was not, it, I went longer. I ended up in the hospital <laughs> and, and then ended up finding out that was not in fact a Bichette's flare. It was Stevens-Johnson syndrome, which can be a fatal condition if you don't get it under control. So just another example uh, of just two people who happen to be talking about this topic yeah. <laughs> and, and how it happened, something happened similar to both of us. So the prevalence of, of understanding your body and, and being able to, to identify, you know, this may not be, and being able to speak up is, it's just so very important. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it just it really wanted to, to add that, that in there. So how did psoriatic arthritis come into the mix? Because it was it was JIA, correct? Yes. So, and I think this is the um, I guess the poor classification of of juvenile arthritis. So, you know, at, at onset, I to the current classification appeared oligoarticular, so um, you know, two joints or less. And then when you know when I was a little bit older, it looked more was it was it extended oligoarticular or polyarticular because then I had literally every joint in the body inflamed. And then when I got into my teenage years, I started with psoriasis. And then it became, well, actually, we, we think it's a psoriatic subset of JIA. And then that is a classification which has carried through with me into adulthood. So um, psoriatic arthritis, or sometimes they, they label it as undifferentiated axial spondylarthropathy. Another lovely time. Um, and, yeah. and you know what? Um, I, I, I find it really interesting in, in the way that um, I guess some clinicians will have to tweak a diagnosis name for drug licensing purposes. Now, this is a whole topic in itself. Oh, um, yeah. Which this, I, this I'm really be, interested in. Yes, we can definitely break <laughs> out to a new episode on this one. <laughs> but, you know, the fact is, you know, in, in the UK, for example, you know, a, a juvenile arthritis diagnosis stays with you for life. So, you know, even when I'm in my nursing home at the age of 95, hopefully, um, <laughs> you know, I will still have juvenile idiopathic arthritis, which seems bizarre, but the, you know, the diagnosis remains the same. But yet, for classification purposes, you know, no, in, in the UK, for example, no um, biologics are licensed in adults with juvenile onset arthritis. So you see the diagnosis changing, and that, I, don't, I don't think it's probably discussed that much. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that is a reality. People will end up having a rheumatoid arthritis label diagnosis for the purposes of securing a particular biologic. And I guess in a similar way to my diagnosis, which is, you know, is, is classed as psoriatic arthritis now in adulthood. And what it's actually, the, you know, the, the, the budget for the, the biologics actually comes from the gastro team, which I can, I'll mention in, you know, in a minute. So there's all these complications, actually, of not just the the diagnosis and managing that but also the what I call the logistics of managing mm -hmm. and managing complex conditions multiple conditions in a complex system and I think you know our health system is, is is certainly complex and the way that actually people are managed 
it comes down to budgets and it comes down to who actually holds the key to that access to that medicine. Mm-hmm. That's the same in the United States. So mm. the diagnosis that you have, sometimes it's manipulated yes. on paper in your record in order to gain the proper medication. And well, there was an episode that I did uh, with Carice Hill, and they were talking about the importance of having the right name associated with the record. And that was a, that was a conversation we can tie back to this as well. But I think mm. that conversation I had with Carice and what you're talking about here would be a great (laughs) segue into, into especially the global, the global aspect of that. But, um, but you're right that, that all, that all plays into it. It's very interesting with the whole JIA and, and having to call it something different Mm. as, as you get, as you get older. So you mentioned the gastro. Yeah. So, um, when I um, probably got to about 11 or 12, I started with symptoms of, well, I didn't know what it was at the time, all the horrible gastro symptoms, which, you know, any young young person approaching teenage years would really want not to discuss. Um, so pain, obviously pain really from here all the way through, you know, the lights of constipation, diarrhea, needing to rush to the toilet, fearing of having an accident, and, and really the, the cramps and and the blood, and not knowing what this was. I don't know, I feel for my mum at the time who, you know, knew there was something wrong, and I think this is the case with a lot of parents of, of young people um, with, with chronic conditions, uh, also mean and also inflammatory conditions in particular. Um, you know, they know there's something wrong, but then trying to get somebody to listen and, and to act on that, and, you know, not, not just realise that they're a neurotic parent, um, you know, that's mm-hmm. not the case, you know, parents know the kids, just as, you know, I knew there was something wrong, but I guess I didn't really feel listened to. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it took over two years to get a diagnosis. I mean, the diagnosis is pretty simple in terms of doing a, a colonoscopy and a gastroscopy to have a look at what's going on. But that was always put off because, oh, we don't think we need to go down that route or, um, you know, we think it's constipation or we think it's, you know, and, and often the, you know, the, the excuse as well, you know, because you're not as physically active because of the arthritis and you're not getting as much physical activity, therefore you're probably a bit more constipated. And, and so excuses are actually developing and, you know, I was put onto loads of laxative medication, which just made me even worse. Um, mm. and, and also, the, and this is where the interest of multiple conditions comes up for me in that a lot of things were already masked. So um, I'd been on steroids recently, so I still had a bit of weight and that takes some time to get off, as we know. Mm-hmm. Um, my inflammatory markers were still high and that was put down to the arthritis. I was on a different biologic, which actually masked the Crohn's disease. So you had all these things which were in place, but you know, the disease was still there, but it was being masked as well as not being really taken seriously. So it, it, it really took my mum to really push to get the, the colonoscopy. I mean, which is not the nicest thing. I mean, who wants one of those? Um, <laughs> Right. And, and just, I would, I'm curious too, that in in the age that you were at, I imagine what you had just said, oh, well, maybe we don't need to do that. If something's unpleasant or for the the patient, I could see it being pushed off even more. Yeah. But to be fair, I literally was happy to do anything because I just wanted to know what, what is this? And, um, you know, my mum had a, a, a slightly similar, con- well, it's not an inflammatory condition per se, but it's called diverticulitis. Mm-hmm. And so diverticular in the bowel, which which get inflamed and can burst. So 
you know, at discussions at home, mum said, you know, well, I don't know if it's something like that. And then, and then obviously the fears, I think, come when, when people say before they actually know, oh, it's, it will certainly not be Crohn's disease. It won't be this. Um, and then, you you know, I remember sitting in the waiting room and um, there was a, it was a, a mixed waiting room and adults uh, were there as well. And there was a, a sign up for bowel cancer and, you know, it was all the symptoms that I had, you know, the blood, the pain. The, the fatigue um and you know and as a child you start thinking oh god is it, you know could mm. it be that and my grandmother passed away of uh, died of bowel cancer you know so that was and that was obviously the back of my mum's mind and you know mm-hmm. because nothing seems to be said you think well what is it you know and you know that was I remember the worry at the time you know and I was like please let it be anything but that and then there was a there was a sign of the Crohn's disease I was like I'd rather it be Crohn's disease than that right you know as a child you know as a you know as a teenager at 14 and like I said, it took that pushing to get that test, and I I literally remember the the consultant coming back back to me after the colonoscopy, and they did a they did a camera as well and a gastroscopy demogolly, uh, um, and I just remember him coming sitting on the side of the bed, and you know you know when somebody like tilts the head and looks at you, and you think oh this is not good, um, mm. and you know and he said and and the first words he said is I'm really really sorry, and I actually said that first that like, you know they didn't necessarily believe me at first why it was. And, you know, he went on to say it was Crohn's disease. I was diagnosed with esophageal reflux disease as well. And, and he basically said from the back of my throat, literally all the way through my digestive system, there were ulcers throughout. It was inflamed and it was just, you know, he said it was instantly clear that this is Crohn's disease. Mm. And so, you know, you hit with that bombshell where you think, right, I know what it is. But then the, like, the realisation hits and I guess I had all the, the horrible thoughts at the time of, you know, the idea of having to have, you know, a colostomy bag or, you know, the things that you tend to think of initially when you think of those kinds of diseases and when you'd read up, um, mm-hmm. you know, and bearing in mind at the time, the internet wasn't as uh, as widely popular as it is now. So, you know, you look the bits and, and you find things and it, it really worries you. And, you know, the implications of this on, on arthritis, the implications, you know, it's another thing to deal with. And those are all the right. kinds of things that, you know, I guess went through my mind at the time. And, you know, then that adjustment to... You know, life with Crohn's disease now as well, um, right? And, and the complications that brings of in terms of managing multiple conditions, right? It's like you get used to an acceptance of one thing, yeah, and then there's a whole that well, there's more groceries in the basket now, yeah. yeah. As you said earlier, it's say, like, okay, now I have all these new products in here, and I have to learn how to juggle these as well. And so there's a there's a real emotional aspect that yeah. comes into play here. Uh, and it I don't think that it, it might be a different depending on age, but it's still there. The concerns yeah. are still there. And I think, you know, what I said earlier on about, you know, that that comparison to between before and afterwards, you know, for me, arthritis has been a constant part of my life. So, you know, I've I've less issue with that in terms of learning to deal with it because that is my normal. I'd probably struggle right. to to be, you know, normal and fit and healthy. I'd probably struggle mm-hmm. more with that because I'm used to <laughs> I'm used to what I've got. Um, but then at the point of, you know, the Crohn's disease diagnosis, then you've got that comparison of the life before, which was challenging, but didn't have this this particular set of symptoms, which are, you know, are, are really limiting at times. Um, you know, I'd learned to, you know, with my, my joints, you know, if I couldn't do something, I couldn't do something, you know, because it was more of a, you know, a joint pain, then I could do things a little bit to maybe help. So I could use heat packs or I could rest. But then with the Crohn's disease, it's like this is com- feels completely out of my control because it's not like a, 
you know it's not like a, a joint that you can rest or put something on and you know it, it's very much invisible and and inside and you know I struggled in terms of well, what can I do to help with these pains and, and suddenly sometimes they can just come on without without thinking so um, mm-hmm. you know you've got all these different you know they're both complex autoimmune conditions but you know have very different characteristics which depend entirely on on the individual and their you know how they're set up and their support structures and what they're doing um, and you know it's very individual which is I guess something that I guess in current practice we we don't always think about how different things you know one condition actually is so different to so many people exactly we we say typical atypicals yeah. <laughs> at our organization because it seems that it's more typical to be atypical yeah than uh than to just be textbook there's so much uniqueness yeah. that comes with these simon when you and i were talking before and we were sort of laying out this episode we were talking about the prevalence of this and I was sort of surprised when the data had come back that about the 25%. Could you kind of give an overview of the prevalence and the research and why you have access to this information? <laughs> Little background of you and, and I mean, uh, your I mean, role I, in the community. I mean, I am no expert at this, um, but I was doing a little bit digging around for today's episode. And, you know, there's a, there's a few terms banded around in the and the academic literature. And, and I guess, yeah, you know, one of the reasons why I have the privilege of sort of access to this kind of research is obviously because I'm, I'm doing my PhD at the moment, which ironically is looking at self-management of arthritis in children. So mm-hmm. something which I, you know, 110% believe in and believe in giving young people advice. But with part of that, obviously, I, I dip in and out of the research quite a lot. And I'm always really interested in, in new things which come in and, um, and the importance, and I don't think we always, I certainly didn't recognise and appreciate it beforehand, but the importance of evidence, um, you know, in, in the world that we live in, medicine should be evidence-based rather than, you know, maybe 70, 80 years ago where it was, well, my doctor does this because he, he's always done this. Or, you know, and that was the case, you know, different doctors, even in, different, in the same hospital, would do different treatments because that's what they did. Um, so, you know, you know, in the last hundred years, we've come so far in medicine, it's unbelievable. But, you know, the importance of evidence behind decisions is really important. And, you know, it's very easy to forget, you know, when we inject ourselves with our, you know, our biologic, that, you know, the the evidence that's behind that um, isn't perfect, you know, and needs to be better. And that's always, you know, the recommendations research, we need more of it, we need, mm-hmm. we need it to be done more over longer periods of time. But, you know, the, the, the waiting behind these things is, um, you know, is quite remarkable. So, and I've, I've always been interested in this case of what the academics describe as um, comorbidity and multimorbidity. Um, mm-hmm. And just as a very brief nutshell, you know, comorbidity is the fact of, You've got an index disease, and then you've got a, another disease which is co-occurring with that and believed to be related. So, you know, one of the key examples is rheumatoid arthritis and cardiovascular disease. Um, just as in your know, psoriatic arthritis and psoriasis, you know, they are mm-hmm. comorbidities. And I guess that's more of the traditional view. Whereas in recent years, there's been much more of a focus on a on a term multimorbidity where you, you, you don't really have that index disease, you know, that one disease which revolves, everything else revolves around, uh, where just to the point where, you know, you have multiple conditions and 
and really how you should be managed is as a person holistically looking at all the different symptoms bringing in the right specialists looking at different treatments how different things interact and actually looking at you as a person and and the impact on quality of life on education employment and all those kinds of things so in terms of the way that we talk about it i prefer multimorbidity um although i hate the term and and um you know academics write in, in a certain style and i and I'm having to write to a degree in a certain style for my PhD. Um, but I'm I'm very much at the point of obviously being a patient and being somebody in the public and trying mm-hmm. to make things a bit more accessible. But um, you know, when I when I read this multi-morbid patient and it sounds terrible. Right. Um, morbid right. <laughs> and you think of when we when I guess when the, the average person thinks of morbid, you think of, you know, miserable old Jack sat in his chair moaning about, oh, this is wrong with the world and I hate this and this is terrible and and you know, I'm I'm not going to be here much longer and, you know, that morbid uh, right, kind of approach, right. whereas morbidity in a medical sense, uh, you know, has a, has a really different meaning. So I hate the term, but I get the principle behind it and, you know, let's not have an argument about the term, but let's talk about the principle. So um, <laughs> multimorbidity, well, people living with multiple conditions, you know, whatever right. we, we name it. And it, the other interesting thing about we're talking about naming here and just as a, as a side note, we were also sort of listing what people call certain things when you have multiple diagnoses. And there are some more traditional, like if you have rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, rupus, that, that's something more uh, commonly understood. But then there's the terminology where maybe professionals, doctors, and patients themselves are calling things different. And I had mentioned there was a term that came up in some disease groups recently where, well, it said MAS, but they called it multiple autoimmune syndromes. Syndrome, yeah. I said, well, that's I hadn't heard that. And apparently it's something that a lot of doctors and patients have been calling if you have three or more um, autoimmune, dis- specifically diagnosed yeah. autoimmune diseases. But then there's also, you had mentioned undifferentiated spondyloarthritis. And that is a big, broad umbrella where a lot of things could come from that, which with your case, it did. <laughs> and then um, I was originally undifferentiated connective tissue disease. And then from there, rheumatoid arthritis, then that changed. So being a- atypical. Uh, but I think that the terminology, too, is, is somewhat important to understand as we talk about comorbidities or multi- morbidities yeah um, because if we're not all speaking the same language that in itself can be very confusing mm. and um you know going back to that research that you were mentioning um and there's one particular paper which was published a couple of years ago which was looking at like the prevalence of a, the article was looking in rheumatology but it was looking at the presence of multimorbidity and, and they defined that as two or more conditions um so in the general population and, and i was a little bit surprised by the figure because and you know this is where sometimes where evidence doesn't necessarily meet with experience, um, mm-hmm. and you know, and they rated it as a, well, they, they estimated it twenty five percent of the general population, but um, that was based on some research. But again, it, you know, it, it is one estimation, which I, I, you know, from experience, would think that to be a, a higher rate. One hundred percent agreed, and. I also did some research and looking up statistics, and I also found 25% mm. was, was the average for 
comorbidities or multi-morbidities in autoimmune or auto-inflammatory diseases. And that, it just seems shockingly low to me. Yeah. And, you know, I think even, even, the, <laughs> even, the, even the authors of that paper acknowledge, you know, that, you know, the, the estimates can vary because of, you know, the distribution of who was included in that um, data set. Um, mm-hmm. and, and even the methods that's used to assess multimorbidity. But, you know, I think the clear thing is, you know, we from experience, Tiffany, you know, from your work, I know from, from my experience and all the different organisations and people I work with that, you know, literally everybody I speak to has more than one condition. So, mm-hmm. you know, it just re-emphasises the importance of actually generating that evidence because that could potentially change the way that things are done differently in the future. And, you know, that, and for me, that's, that's what excites me about research in that, you know, we know these things and, well, actually, we need to prove them and, and how that can then influence the way that multiple conditions are managed. Because, you know, if we've not got the evidence, then how are we going to influence policymakers to change the way that services are commissioned or, you know, how things are done? Because actually, well, you know, it's okay as we do it. Well, you know, it's Absolutely. Not, it's I, not, I, really, you know. I really think that's the that's the key takeaway mm. from everything we're talking about today is is as we move forward and we think about um what needs to happen <laughs> is exactly what you just said we need to to start finding ways to record more information get some more data because like you said i i rarely rarely meet anybody mm. uh that says they have one disease yeah they i I can't even honestly think of anybody off the top of my head. That's how rare it is. Um, so that that is a big red flag to me personally mm, to yeah. see a number like that. There's a disconnect, a huge disconnect in what we're hearing versus the research. And and you know you know what really is what what I find frustrating. And anyway, it is an acknowledgement. But looking at research, you know, research. The whole point of research is it's supposed to it's supposed to be specific on a particular area. But the you know the 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 whole thing about research is it's supposed to be specific and it's got to be focused. Um, but that's completely not what complex health conditions, multimorbidity, living with multiple conditions is. It's complex, and and so when you take that to researchers to say we need to do a piece on on multimorbidity on complex conditions, then it it does make the research harder. And when we say harder, it means it's it's you know things are possible but it's more complex so if we're looking at a clinical trial you know usually clinical trials have very tight inclusion and exclusion criteria and you know if if they're looking at developing a new drug for psoriatic arthritis then they would exclude everybody with every other condition and we would just want psoriatic arthritis and that's how clinical trials have typically been done uh, and Mm -hmm. continue to be done today Whereas I always argue, you know, the days are from that. How realistic is it in the real world? You know, how many people just have psoriatic arthritis or rheumatoid arthritis on its own? You know, it's not necessarily real life. Real life is multiple conditions, sometimes conditions which are not diagnosed, multiple symptoms. And so to to generate the evidence around multiple conditions, we need to challenge the way that we do things. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's going to be harder. It's going to probably cost more money because that's always the root of yep. <laughs> of all the of all evil. You know, things are more complex, which means more money. Um, mm-hmm. But actually, that is really important for us to look at. How do we, how do treatments work in people with multiple conditions? What are the unique challenges? And um, you know, even even down to the you know 
the way that diseases operate on an individual body and how people respond to different treatments, that could be completely different based on the the uniqueness of the diagnosis that a person has. And I think, you know, we're at a really exciting time with genomic medicine and personalised medicine. And, and I think we're probably hitting the the decade where we start to see some of that mm-hmm. that new thinking coming across and challenging the way that we do things. So I think, you know, it's an exciting decade, but at the same time, you know, people are still living with these problems. It's not right. it's nothing new. Um and so we, you know, as as patients, as carers, as um patient advocates and health professionals, we need to be challenging that um in the way that things have always been done because that's just a way um to look at actually what can we do to to get the evidence that's more reflective of real life. That is is so well said. And um, at, at our nonprofit and International Foundation for AI Arthritis, that is one of our key priorities. Uh, mm-hmm. It has been for the last couple of years is the whole precision medicine, preparing for it, uh, the need for it <laughs> because of exactly what we're talking about today. This typical atypical, the comorbidities, patients are not able to participate in trials uh, unless they are just mainstream one disease, which we know is not common. So then what goes to market? The biologics that only represent a certain percentage of patients, like you said, that's pretty biased. And when you're talking about medications that are hugely a barrier on our healthcare system and in essence, the, the respect that they're so expensive, we really need to do what we can to be matching patients with the right one as early as possible. And so another breakout conversation. Mm, yeah, I could talk about <laughs> it all day. Talk about <laughs> with that for sure. You know, one of the other things that when you were talking, you mentioned uh, that you had then seen a gastroenterologist, and a lot of patients, depending on your disease, the rheumatologist would become kind of the primary. I consider my rheumatologist my primary doctor, just because it seems like whenever I have an issue, that that's who I go to. But with comorbidities, that's not always the case. I mean, I do also have ophthalmologists because of my eyes and and having that situation. Um, yeah. But what? Let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, who becomes the the coordinator of care? Yeah. Um. And I often say the the coordinator of care becomes me. Um. Becomes the <laughs> patient. Uh, and you know that is so true for so many cases. I know it's interesting what you say about your rheumatologist being your, you know, your go-to person and, you know, having the people on the side. And I guess to me, I have the, the, the rheumatologist and the gastroenterologist as the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the two teams as the go-to people with, you know, the, the dermatology, ophthalmology, all those kinds of people on the periphery. Um, right. Dermatology but, as well with myself. Yeah. And then and, and the right to the other specialities, you know, probably with probably between us, we've probably worked through most of the specialities of medicine. Um <laughs> yes um but it it is an interesting thing because um you know i think in pediatrics what what i noticed you know it was a much more coordinated and you know it was much more the rheumatology and the gastro people working together but rheumatology seemed to be in pediatrics my primary go-to person and the ones who really coordinated everything now when i moved to adults that really did shift and Mm. and in in part that is because it was decided again because of the diagnostic criteria and um, the the licensing of medicines that the the biologic that I was on in pediatrics it would have to be gastro coming into the gastro budget 
for me to be able to stay on that. So, so like the, the control of, you know, the, the biologic medication went to the gastro. And then I think with that, you know, the authority of, of main consultant then shifts, um, which is, is interesting in itself. And, and I very much had these conversations, you know, in the way that our setup is, you know, you have the name consultant, but I can probably count on one hand over the years how many times I've seen that consultant because you tend to see a different registrar every time because because clinics are so busy. Now, in recent years, I've got a, um, they've brought in a new consultant in rheumatology who I've seen, I think, consecutively for you know the last couple of years, and he's brilliant, and I got on really well with him. Um, and I think that makes such a difference when you have that you have that relationship with a health professional who understands your your needs. Um, mm-hmm. But the, it's slightly different in the gastro world um, because I still don't have that continuity. And it, it, you know, when I go to gastro, they say, "Well, what a rheumatology said," and and vice versa. You know, when I go to rheumatology, um, you know, the rheumatologist knows me a little bit now, so we have a bit of the banter about, you know, what what they said. Come on, let's let's have a catch up. And it, and it's me who's actually doing that coordination of care, and I and I see that I see that quite commonly. I saw it when I was supporting my mum. Um, I see it with other people as well. So. You know, you often become that coordinator with care. You feed back, and you know you would hope that they speak in between. But you know, with knowing how busy things are, things get missed, and and it, it's a shame, really. But ultimately, you know, if you're not on, if you're not on the game, and you're not looking, chasing blood tests and chasing different things, then you can really, really quickly get missed mm-hmm. um, out of the system, which is is wrong. And I and I particularly worry for those who you know. Who just think oh they know what they're doing and and you know and it's this is not a criticism of health professionals at all you know it's more of the criticism of the system that we've that we've become um and you know it's it's almost um you know a failure of our own success i think in medicine you know medicine's become so specialized mm-hmm. that I, I probably think now it's probably a little bit too specialized um thinking back to you know and you know, I've had lots of conversations when my mum was here, you know, about the GP and the general practitioner, the primary care physician, mm-hmm. however you want to call it. And right. you know, actually, they were the family doctor. They knew the they knew the entire family and the generations of the family. They they did that follow up. They coordinated that care. They got they saw things through. They even came to the hospital. Um, and my mum remembers this. You know, her GP actually came to the hospital every week. To check on their patients and see what they were up to, and looking about discharging them, looking about getting them back into the community, and then that, and that's back in the eighties, mm-hmm. and we've we, we started. That's what we need now, but we've not got it. And you know, these are the things that come out of the research now. We need this community-based approach. We need holistic approaches to to healthcare, and then they've sort of been there in the past, but you know, with more and more patients, with people living longer because people you know and all these things which are fantastic we have now mm-hmm. created our own challenges um and so these are the kinds of things which you know i think are are barriers but also you know there's things that can be done i feel to join up care in relatively straightforward terms which you know not only improves life for patients and for the families and people actually living with these conditions day in day out but to get the policymakers to listen that you know the way coordinated care makes good business sense and good economic sense for hospitals for for the insurers you know in in likes of the us you know it mm-hmm. makes sense because actually you're probably going to reduce uh, the cost you know the cost of different interventions because you had this thing where you're looking at people and addressing the symptoms rather than just ticking boxes because of 
of diagnoses and because of the way things have been done. Um, and I find that whole topic was really interesting and, yeah. um, you know, seeing that as a way forward, it just makes sense. You know, let's treat people. Let's look at people. Let's support them. Um, it makes sense. And we've just got to keep pushing for it. That is such an important point that you bring up. And I know there's a lot of talk around coordinating care. Clinics have started to emerge uh, to generate that communication where a person can go somewhere and they can see different specialties. And I don't think there's enough, nearly enough. No. <laughs> They're not showing up uh, as many places. I, it's such smart healthcare, as you said. I, I, I firmly believe in that. I also think it's interesting that there's in this day and age of patient portals where you can easily share information that it's still not being shared mm. as among, but the same, but the, like my physician team, for example, they're all on that portal, but it takes me, the coordinator of care to push that information through to the other person. And so yeah. I think what you said about you being your top coordinator of care is an extremely important takeaway yeah. for this. And, and you know what? I, Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you know, you just another idea just pinged in my head. Um, as <laughs> this is what happens. That's, that's what conversations do. This is Yay! what happens. <laughs> even in even in my sleep at two o'clock in the morning, something sometimes <laughs> just pops in my head, and I was like, I, I get to, it. Believe I have me. to write it down or something. It's crazy. Uh, <laughs> I totally understand. <laughs> um, but uh, that whole point about you mentioned about the patient portal, and you know, there's loads of talk about remote access to to your files and um all, all electronic electronic health records and sharing your data across different different teams and sharing your data for research and you know i'm all i'm all for let's give as many opportunities for people as possible but actually that really raises a point um you know even about access to records and how difficult for us you know again this is a, a, a context thing but you know for, for us in the uk it's really really difficult to get hold of our health records before the the european gdpr regulation came in last year um was it last year or the year before i can't remember but i'm gonna have to default to you on that <laughs> there was a there was a lot a lot of um debates about it but um you know this new regulation about data protection and uh, but before before that came in uh, you used to have to pay to get copies of your records and the, the the funny thing is that your records, you would think, you know, we, we're in one country, um, mm -hmm. even though we're four developed nations across the UK, but we're one country. And you would expect wherever you go that any health healthcare professional will be able to see your all of your records. Mm -hmm. um, that's not the case. So you have one electronic health record across the National Health Service, but it contains minimal information such as allergies, um, diagnoses, although it doesn't always contain all of them, and your current treatments. And and to me, that's not enough, you know, so I could turn up at a hospital in London and, you know, there could be some potentially really relevant and life-saving information on my records, which they wouldn't have access to. Mm -hmm. And that just begs the question of, you know, why is things, why are things so fragmented? Why does, you know, and, and the way that it works is my data actually belongs to one hospital trust, which I'm under. Mm -hmm. And then you can see, you know, if somebody's under multiple hospital trusts because of the way that specialist services work then they have you know they you know my mum had five different sets of medical records across five different hospital trusts and none of them shared that information 
So they all coded it slightly differently or they all, you know, documented right. things slightly differently. And that poses to me, that poses a patient safety risk because mm-hmm. you have, especially with people with multiple conditions, you have the risk of things being missed. And I know that certainly has happened. And, you know, with experience with mum, you know, I, I make it a joke, but it is not really funny. But, you know, I could, you know, if you, if your dog's chipped, you can take it to any vet and they can, they scan them and they can find out all the records. Yet, you know, if you're a, a person, a human being, and mm-hmm. you rock, you rock up in, you know, in a completely different city, having had a heart attack or whatever it may be, then you know they don't really know much about you. And it, it's right. it's just like what 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 are we doing? <laughs> you know what what is the mess of it? You know, it's so interesting. And again, this could uh, we've got to make a completely different yeah. show on this <laughs> topic because it's so you you you've just inspired my brain now <laughs> to start up because here in in the United States. I mean, we don't even have the the shared minimal mm-hmm. information. We literally, your doctor is forwarding their records to your next doctor and and so forth. So we are having, we actually, there was an episode, um, we're starting a pilot breakout series on this podcast called Roomy Rounds. Yeah. And the idea is, as much as we are sitting here at the table having a discussion, rheumatologists or rheumatology professionals sit down at the table with patients mm. and talk about these hard issues that maybe don't come up in an office environment. Yeah. And one of the things that came up in one of the pilot episodes was this issue of you have conditions and one doctor will take notes on something and then it, you ha- the doctor has to rely on that other physician to be yeah. taking the correct notes and forwarding all of that. So it's like a moving package yeah. that that goes with you and and there's no consensus on what needs to go into that data. So there's huge holes in systems around the world that I think we need to kind of coordinate and get someone some people from Canada, Australia and actually have some patients sit down and have a conversation about these holes, about the this lack of data recording, especially in diseases like ours that I'm going to go on record saying, I believe is more than 25% in comorbidities or multimorbidities. It, yeah. It's just something that is necessary. And yeah. and we we should unite together and start to work on those type of things. I think it's a it's a hole that needs yeah. to be filled. And just think, how, just think how amazing it would be to have one system where all your details are, which you can access at any time because it is your data, but also where you can input also into your own data, you know, how many people are using wearables and using and collecting data themselves. Well, actually, let me feed this into you. Um, you mm-hmm. know, let me donate my data for research purposes. And this is thing that's another topic in itself. But right. This this different way of thinking to where we, you know, this is truly where we bring patients as part of a team. So, you know, this is my data. We're using this to improve my care and my health and my well-being. And then I'm doing some good by donating my data if I wish to do so mm-hmm. for research to, you know, for the, the gaps where we, we've got gaps in evidence. Well, actually, let's use the data that we're collecting day in, day out, and let's use that. Um, you know, so there's huge, I think there's huge potential here. And this all comes back to that, you know, the way that the world is, you know, we, we're growing ever more complex. People are having more conditions. People are um, doing more things on their own um, out of desperation. And also, you know, you know, the likes of people using wearables, um, doing different regimes at home. Let's actually pull that together because it makes it makes good sense in terms of, you know, supporting people to be healthier. 
in terms of managing their disease, but it also has massive knock-on effects to research data um, and even to the way that the resources are used within a hospital setting. Um, right. If I'm if I'm doing reasonably well, there may not be a need for me to actually come into clinic to see the consultant. I could mm-hmm. maybe have a, a short video consultation with them and say, do you know what, I'm doing okay. Use that face-to-face appointment through a newly diagnosed patient who's on that waiting list and has been on there for 12 months. Use it right. for that. You know, actually, the way that we do things completely, you know, it's radical, but actually it makes sense. You know, let's start having these conversations and, and giving people the choice. What what do they think they need at this moment in time? That's, wow. That's, you know, we we had a whole outline on how we were going <laughs> to... And we've just completely this. derailed it. It's fine. But it doesn't matter because it, it the convert this is exactly what our nonprofit is all about is there's this phase and we always start with patient conversations because we firmly believe by talking with each other is the way to identify those holes and those needs that we can start to address. And I think that this conversation has been outstanding in that respect because we have talked about not only our own experiences, but the fact that the prevalence and what is in current research is likely not as presenting as high as mm. we believe it probably will. And yeah. there's reasons for that. Yeah. And, and we, as people living with these diseases, what can we do moving forward to push that along? You know, what is, is nonprofit, as patients, as, as patient um, advocates, mm. what can we do to push that. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that, Simon, on, on kind of moving forward, what, what the next steps would be for people? Not, I, I have some ideas for nonprofit, yeah, but yeah. about just patients living with these diseases, what we can do to prepare and get better control over the, the whole issue of comorbidity and managing our own coordination of care. Yeah. And, um, you know, my, my argument always is to people is, you know what, have that conversation with your, with, with your team. I, I guess some people are sometimes a bit hesitant to, well, it's not the gastroenterologist's role to, to talk about the rheumatology side of things, but actually have have that discussion and be, you know, I guess it takes a little bit of confidence, but to go into your consultation, I know I go into mine, you know, and think, oh my word, he's, he, he's here again, um, you know, because I'm having that conversation and I'm saying, well, actually, I think about this, what do you think about that? And not everybody is, is that way inclined to have that, to be trying to lead that conversation, but Take a, a step out of the comfort zone if you can do, um, and begin to have those conversations with your different teams. And there are little things you can do, but I think you know one of the the things we've got to do we've we've got to change practice and we've got to change systems, and that can come from the ground up, like we're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're both doing that, and we're working with lots of other people who are doing that, and health professionals. You know, with the likes of a lot of the pan continent organizations like ULAR in rheumatology mm-hmm. they're doing a lot of work to transform the way that things are done but ultimately it's got to come from a top-down approach as well so we've, we've got to get the policy people on side we've got to get our health service leads on side to say how do we change things but how do we change things with everybody at the table you know yeah. not like in the past where it was just your health professionals and your professional community patients are part of that professional community now like it's mm-hmm. our lump it and um, we're here to stay and and we have a voice so um you know let's do things together because actually the issues are the ones that we're facing and from experience the patients often have the uh, the best solutions yes because we we know exactly what would work to make our lives better and and probably make the lives of health professionals better and 
cut down on a lot of waste which we see i see you know every single day mm-hmm. a lot of waste yes and that, you know that just makes me think how could we do things so much better so much more efficiently which benefits everybody i could not have said that any better that was fantastic <laughs> and and so in keeping again with our whole mission as an organization yeah. at our foundation that's why we are led by patient voices because mm. we identified very early that if we keep talking we know what is missing and we can at least set the platform or the stage for some future solutions. Yeah, and so absolutely. Simon, just thank you so much for co-hosting this with me. No, thank you as well. I, I, there are so many directions that we can take this conversation. So Simon is one of our recurring co-hosts. So you will hear from him more. And I have a feeling we already have a whole agenda. Yeah. Of- <laughs> That's out for the next couple of years. (laughs) Of future episodes here. But for for the next steps, what we really would like to do is have our listeners join in the conversation, join in this with us, whether it is our persons living with these diseases, doctors, as you said, policy, health services. If you have an opinion on this, we want to hear about it because only together as we continue these conversations are we going to be able to come up with solutions. We know they won't happen tomorrow, the big picture, what isn't going to happen overnight, but there are little things that we can do to start working towards that. If you would like to join a seat at the table, we will have this episode posted on our social medias, which are Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at IFAI Arthritis. You also can email us your opinions at podcast at AIarthritis.org, and uh, we will continue collecting information and then circle back and revisit on this. So you can also catch this and all podcast episodes anywhere that you listen to podcasts, and please subscribe and give us a rating, and hopefully it'll be a good rating. And you can listen to any of the episodes as well on our website at AIarthritis.org backslash podcast. So that is going to wrap it up today. Simon, again, thank you so much. And thank you for co-hosting with me as well. It's been great. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And make sure that you pull up a seat at the table and join the conversation because only together can we change the stories of tomorrow. Oh, that was great. AI Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www.aiarthritis.org. Join us again on Wednesday for our special breakout episode.